Chapter 12 of Immortality and the Unseen World by W. O. E. Westerly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12 Immortality, the Normal Lot of Man. In all that has been said, the fact which stands out most prominently is the deep seated belief in the continued life of men after death. In whatever different ways that life may have been conceived of, whether it was some counterpart of the body, or whether it was the soul as distinct from the body, or whether it was merely the shade that continued to exist, the central point of the persistence of consciousness after death is of prime importance. This is taken for granted in such a way, and is believed to be demonstrated so obviously that it stands on the same level with the recognition of the fact that men live in the ordinary way. 1. The Origin of the Belief in Continued Existence After Death We may pause for a moment to consider how it came about that men should have believed that, in some form or other, they continued to live after death. For this belief is universal, so far as the available evidence permits us to judge it has been held all the world over from all time since man became a thinking being in considering in the briefest manner the reason for this universal belief our purpose is to observe the common ground and then to note how from this common ground semitic and more especially israelite belief diverged and struck out on a line which in some important respects became individual what was it then which first gave rise to the belief that men continued to live after they had finished their ordinary life on earth since this belief arose in the first instance among men in a primitive stage of culture we must expect it to be based upon arguments of a naive character and the generally accepted theory of the leading authorities on the subject is well illustrated by the answer of a native of Australia to the question as to whether he believed that his soul could leave his body. He replied, It must be so, for when I sleep, I go to distant places, I see distant people, I even see and speak with those that are dead. That is to say, Owing to dreams, early man came to believe that there was a part of himself, different from and independent of his body, since it could leave the body and go to distant places, which could meet with and converse with people who were alive, as well as with those who were dead. To primitive man, what we call a dream proved that the dead were still alive. In writing on this subject, Fraser says, quote, The savage finds a very strong argument for immortality in the phenomena of dreams, which are strictly a part of his inner life, though in his ignorance he commonly fails to discriminate them from what we properly call waking realities. Hence, when the images of persons whom he knows to be dead appear to him in a dream, he naturally infers 
that these persons still exist somewhere and somehow apart from their bodies of the decay and destruction of which he may have had ocular demonstration how could he see dead people he asks if they did not exist to argue that they have perished like their bodies is to contradict the plain evidence of his senses for to the savage still more than to the civilized man seeing is believing that he sees the dead only in dreams does not shake his belief since he thinks the appearances of dreams just as real as the appearances of his waking hours from the point of view of uncivilized man it is therefore not difficult to understand why he believed that those whom he knew to have died were as a matter of fact still alive but this belief must at a relatively early stage have occasioned some very natural questionings on the part of uncivilized man the sight of the dead body of a friend together with the occasional appearance of the same friend in dreams must sooner or later have resulted in the speculation vague unformulated inarticulate though it may have been as to how these two were related why should the body of the friend have fallen to corruption and have become less and less like his former self while every now and again he appeared as his normal self the mystery must have been very baffling but the explanation was found in the doctrine of the external soul we have had occasion to speak of this and to point out the references to it in the old testament so that there is no reason to dwell upon it here it may or may not have preceded belief in the continuation of life after death for our present purpose it does not matter but as according to this doctrine the soul could slip in and out of the body it would have explained to the satisfaction of uncivilized man the relationship between the dead body of a friend and his appearance in his normal self in spite of death that is it simply meant that the friend had quitted his body permanently but another question had to be answered how came it that the body part of a man succumbed to death it was evident that something untoward must have happened which ought to be accounted for the ordinary life of man was that which was natural and normal to him since that had been disturbed it meant that something unnatural and abnormal must have happened this reasoning may appear absurd enough to modern ears but that to uncivilized man it was one of great seriousness is proved by the large variety of reasons given why men die and by the myths which are in existence to account for death and to explain how it came about a mass of evidence on these points has been gathered by fraser who shows that many savages in different parts of the world believe that men die because of sorcery otherwise they would go on living indefinitely others believe that death is brought about by evil spirits 
it is exceptional when they attribute death to natural causes very interesting again are the many myths which are told concerning the origin of death here too fraser supplies us with details in profusion death then was looked upon as something abnormal which did not exist originally and which ought not to have been the lot of man this so far as the evidence points has been the general belief among practically all races of the earliest beliefs of the semitic race on this subject we have no direct evidence but one may justifiably infer that the early semites did not differ in this fundamental belief from the rest of mankind and this is raised to a practical certainty by the fact that the old testament contains indubitable remnants in regard to it two the old testament story of the garden of eden the present forms of this story are comparatively late but they contain conceptions on the subject of immortality which go back to a hoary antiquity the clear presence of some advanced ideas to be found in these extant forms of the story shows that later thinkers have been at work on them but clearly they were not concerned to obliterate the marks of antique thought still preserved in them it must strike every reader of the second and third chapters of genesis who reads these passages with any attention that of the two special trees mentioned as growing in the garden of eden namely the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil it is the latter which occupies the prominent position in the narrative nevertheless there are two passages towards the end of the narrative which show quite clearly that it is the tree of life which is in reality the more important these two passages are chapter three verse nineteen and chapter three verses twenty two through twenty four the former runs thus in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground for out of it wast thou taken for dust thou art and unto dust shalt thou return the other is as follows and the lord god said behold the man is become as one of us to know good and evil and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and live for ever therefore the lord god sent him forth from the garden of eden to till the ground from whence he was taken so he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of eden the cherubim and the flame of a sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life the two central points here are that man is to return to dust and that he must be kept from the tree of life lest he should eat of its fruit and live for ever in which case he would not return to dust so that according to these two passages the tree of life is really the more important of the two trees indeed the mention of a second tree overweighs the story and the surmise can scarcely be considered overbold that in its original form only one tree figured in the garden this one tree 
would have been the tree of life. The mention of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil presupposes an advance in religious ethical ideas, and therefore belongs to later times. But both forms of the story, the original and the augmented, have an etiological purpose. Each is intended to explain why it was that death came and disturbed the normal lot of man. We shall return to these two in a moment, but it will be instructive first to glance at one of the Babylonian forms of the story. If we had nothing but the developed form of the Genesis story before us, we should still be impelled to discern the greater importance of the tree of life. But in one of the very much earlier Babylonian forms of the story, it is told how in the fields of the blessed, corresponding to the Garden of Eden, there was a wonderful plant which bore fruit, and whosoever ate of this fruit remained young for ever and ever. That clearly corresponds to the fruit of the tree of life. There is only this one tree spoken of in this earlier form of the story. It then goes on to tell of how the man was about to eat of this wonderful fruit, but was prevented from doing so by the serpent, who seized it and ate it himself. That this Babylonian story was originally told in order to account for the existence of death is clear. A parallel story to this, and originally dependent upon it, is therefore to be seen in Genesis. For there, too, the story is told in order to account for the existence of death. In this latter, the dwelling of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was, on the face of it, meant to have continued indefinitely. Death is not thought of, and therefore not mentioned, until an abnormal state of affairs has been brought about through the instrumentality of the serpent, so that it is evident that immortality, not the existence of death, was regarded as man's normal state. According to the Babylonian form of the story just referred to, the existence of death is accounted for by the fact that the serpent appropriated to itself the fruit of immortality, and thus prevented man from eating it. According to the Genesis story, the serpent causes the fruit of the wrong tree to be eaten. We should have expected that the story would have gone on to say that the serpent ate the fruit of the right tree, that is, of the tree of life, and thus appropriated immortality to itself. And it is quite possible that an earlier Hebrew form of the story may have done so. But while this cannot be affirmed with certainty, we do know that the Babylonian form of the story, from which the Hebrew form was ultimately derived, contains this detail, and it is an important one. For there is an extraordinary widespread belief among primitive peoples in the immortality of the serpent, because it periodically sheds its skin. It was firmly believed that every time the serpent shed its skin, its life was renewed, and by this means it was able to throw off its decaying part, and was thus assured of perpetual youth. If, as there is no reason to doubt, the Semites, and with them the ancient Israelites, in common with so many other peoples, 
shared this belief the choice of the serpent as the instrument of robbing man of immortality is seen to be significant we are thus tempted to hold that the beginnings of a hebrew doctrine of immortality took a form somewhat like this man was originally intended to be immortal but he became subject to death and the reason for this was that the fruit of the tree of life which was meant for him was by subtlety taken and eaten by the serpent who thus appropriated to itself the gift of immortality intended for man the consideration of the next step in the development of this doctrine we must postpone for a little because another point which bears upon it suggests itself here we have seen that death was looked upon as something abnormal and that it had to be accounted for since man was originally intended to be immortal if we now inquire why it was that man should have been thought to have been destined for immortality it is because the answer will be seen to have a direct bearing upon the subsequent development of the doctrine of immortality among the hebrews three why man was believed to have been originally immortal civilized man was concerned with seeking to account for the origin of death since to his ideas unceasing life was meant to have been the normal lot of men but with the advance of civilization speculation takes a further step while the belief in man having originally been intended to be immortal still holds good the universality and inevitability of death impresses men more and more and the stress comes to be laid rather on the question as to the reason why man was originally immortal the gradual steps which led up to this speculation are obscure but of one thing there can be no doubt and that is that the development of belief in supernatural beings had a great deal to do with it we are mainly concerned with the hebrews and therefore to some extent with the semites generally in one of the babylonian creation accounts it is said that when man was created a pair was created and this pair was created with the blood of the creator now when one remembers that according to the very ancient semitic conception it was in the blood that the life resided one can easily understand that the divine and therefore immortal life which resided in the blood of the deity would be transferred to any being in whom this divine blood was implanted and man thus created would be regarded as immortal for that the gods were immortal was taken for granted that was looked upon as their nature regarding which no question arose in one of the genesis creation stories chapter two verse seven it is said that the lord god breathed into his nostrils the breath of life as the late professor driver said quote, man's preeminence is implied in the use of the special term breathed which is not used of the other animals and which suggests that in this case the breath of life 
stands in a special relation to the creator and may be the vehicle of higher faculties than those possessed by animals generally but it means more than this it means that the breath breathed in by a creator who was immortal conferred thereby on man the faculty of becoming immortal and once more in the other genesis account of the creation chapter one verses twenty six and twenty seven it is said and god created man in his own image in the image of god created he him the word image comes from the root of which the cognate arabic root means to cut off it is conceivable that there was present the underlying undefined idea of part of the original having been in a certain sense cut off and if so the part would of course partake of the nature of the whole according to the antique conception of the hebrews at any rate in all the three accounts referred to the immortality of man would be accounted for because of the mode of his creation a part of him partook of the divine and therefore immortal nature in connection with these old-world ideas regarding the mode of man's creation viz by means of the divine blood according to the babylonian account by means of the divine breath according to the hebrew one it is worth while recalling that the old testament has two significant expressions for describing the process of dying which evidently reflect very ancient conceptions they are firstly to pour out the blood deuteronomy chapter twelve verses twenty three and twenty four and secondly to breathe out the soul jeremiah chapter fifteen verse nine compare genesis chapter thirty five verse eighteen first kings chapter seventeen verses twenty one and twenty two job chapter eleven verse twenty chapter thirty one verse thirty nine both expressions contain the idea of letting the essence of life go free this being the divine part of man it continued to exist even though the body returned to dust for however small the divine portion in man might originally have been it was divine life and this was immortal it is also conceivable that we have in the old testament one or two faint reflections of a belief that at one time even the body itself continued to live indefinitely this is suggested by the notice in genesis chapter five verse twenty four that enoch never died he walked with god and he was not for god took him and by the legend attached to the name of elijah that he never died but went up to heaven in a fiery chariot and horses for a religious ethical development we surmised above that the beginnings of a hebrew doctrine of immortality took the form that man was originally intended to be immortal but that he became subject to death because of the subtlety of the serpent in preventing him from eating of the fruit of the tree of life 
the whole idea is upon the face of it very primitive and reflects a very naive mental outlook it will be objected that this is not quite true as an account of the genesis story and that we are not therefore justified in regarding this as a hebrew form even in its beginnings of a doctrine of immortality we sympathize with the objection though in view of the evidence of the babylonian account and the well-established influence of babylonian thought upon the hebrews we are unable to regard it as valid however that may be let us now take the story in the present old testament form in which the tree of life is put into the background and the central importance is assigned to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil even so the story is none the less told in order to account for the origin of death only now death is accounted for by an act of disobedience on the part of man to his creator and unto adam he said because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which i commanded thee saying thou shalt not eat of it cursed is the ground for thy sake in toil shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground for out of it wast thou taken for dust thou art and unto dust shalt thou return genesis chapter three verses seventeen through nineteen the point of prime importance here is the reason on account of which death was brought into the world viz disobedience to a divine command this reflects a great advance in the doctrine of god among the israelites which as we shall see more fully in the next chapter conditions the development of belief in immortality it also presupposes the existence of a sense of sin unknown to the hebrews of earlier ages in this form of the story the serpent is in reality quite superfluous and no fruit from the tree of life would have availed under any circumstances the fact that these find a place here shows clearly enough that an old story has been utilized and adapted the development which this form of the story presents did not proceed further disobedience to the creator's command that is sin was the reason on account of which death came upon all flesh this is the teaching of the targums the apocrypha and the pseudepigrapha it is also though in a somewhat modified form the teaching of the rabbis it is also that which underlies what saint paul teaches in romans chapter five verses twelve through twenty one but this constitutes only one department as it were of the doctrine of immortality in the old testament and before we come to consider the development in other directions it will be well to summarize what has been said in some earlier chapters end of chapter twelve